because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Uh, first, first things first, let's explain the setting uh, and the background. I'm actually on vacation with family in Turkey, and uh, we're 10 hours ahead of my usual West Coast time, so uh, it was difficult to, to book a guest for this week, so I decided I would do uh, a little bit of Q&A. So I put out notice on Facebook, got a lot of good questions, uh, and I'm, I'm really happy we did this because uh, the questions are really interesting, and... Um, it actually raised a lot of issues that have come up on Power Hour, but that I haven't discussed uh, too much uh, explicitly. Uh, and also just a, really when it comes to how to think about these energy issues. So every week we, we usually discuss some discrete energy issue, and I and the guest will talk a little bit about how to think about it. Um, but today's going to be a real focus on that. Of course, um, where necessary, I'll fill in whatever facts are necessary to answer a given question. But I really wanna f what I really want to focus on is is how to think about how to think about how you think about energy. And I think thinking about questions is a really good way to do that because um, there, there's a point Ayn Rand has that is for those of you who don't know the philosopher Ayn Rand. Um, uh, one, you know, in, um, indispensable influence on me and many other people um, has this idea that philosophy shapes everyone's thinking. You have a philosophy whether you know it or not. The only choice is do you think about your philosophy or do you just accept the philosophy that others hand down to you and, and you sort of get whatever ideas that they give you by chance. And, and so let's talk a little bit about what it means to accept a philosophy. You know, the core of philosophy is two basic issues. One is how to think properly, which is called epistemology, and then one is how to act properly, which is ethics. Um, and both of these are, are really important. We'll see them come up with seemingly questions that seem to have nothing to do with philosophy will uh, ultimately completely come down to philosophy because um, the way that we think is completely not um, automatic in terms of there's we don't automatically think about things the right way. It's very easy to absorb wrong ways uh, of thinking about things. And then the second thing is in terms of ethics, the assumptions we make about right and wrong pervade our entire thinking about every issue. And unfortunately, the energy field most people don't realize this. Most people think that you can think about sort of what is the best form of energy or what the government's policy should be independent of ethics, but ethics is, is the very study of what things should be and, and the premises behind that and how you determine what should be and what shouldn't be. So it, it it's everywhere. It's in economic uh, questions. It's in thinking about things like pollution. There are all sorts of, of ethical considerations um, that, that are involved. And what often happens in our thinking is we inherit so much from the culture. The culture teaches us a certain way of thinking, and the culture has a certain, overall, has a certain um, um, implicit, uh, sometimes explicit philosophy. Now, I should say the, the culture, but really the intellectual leaders in the culture. And I think in general, in America, the intellectual leaders in the culture are worse than the culture itself. And, and three things to always look out for in terms of what their philosophy is and what assumptions they're putting forward when they're explaining the issue is one, their view of, of reason, sort of the um, 
is reason capable of solving you know various uh, human problems. Um, a second thing is what is their view of morality? What is their standard of right and wrong? How do they get at that and how does that that manifest um, itself? And then what is their view, and this depends on their view of reason and morality, what is their view of capitalism? What is their view of a system of liberty and property rights uh, and voluntary trade? And as we'll see with energy, the, the dominant premises in the culture are, are in one way or another anti-reason in morality, anti-individualism, and then anti-capitalism. And even we'll see that some of the questions that we're getting here um, are coming from people who believe in reason, individualism, and capitalism, and yet I think in some cases are absorbing uh, the wrong premise, uh, which is really interesting. So I know that that's a lot of lead up. Just let me make one more point about questions. Uh, questions are a really interesting part of thinking because they have this almost innocence that is is imbued upon them where people feel safe asking a question. And I mean, they should in the sense of someone answering a question shouldn't be a jerk. Um, but there's this idea that there's no such thing as a bad question. And that if someone asks you a question, you should just answer the question straightforwardly. And often, sometimes you'll get if you if you say, well, it's not a yes or no answer, they'll say, oh, come on, just answer the question. And one of the, the sort of standard responses to this is, you know, someone says this to you and let's say they're married, you can say, well, okay, do you still beat your wife? Which is this classic fallacious question, because if you say yes, it means yes, I still beat my wife. And if you say no, it means no, I don't be my wife now, but I did in the past. And the point is that of this, that little example is that every, that, that question has a certain assumption. In this case, it has the, the false assumption, or at least it's not right to assume that unless unless you know uh, but that's not the context here um it's 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 giving you a false al it's assuming a false alternative and this is actually true not the false alternative but the issue of assumption is true of basically every kind of question questions have assumptions built into them or to put it a little, a little more formally they have premises built into them so when we think about questions about energy and someone asks us we have to think about what are the assumptions that are built in uh, to this question, and are those assumptions correct? And if they're not correct, then one of the major things that has to be done is clearing up the assumption. But there's there's a real danger in just allowing anyone to assume anything they want, and and feel obligated to. Oh, they asked me a question. I have to answer the question. No, I mean assuming you know the answer, you should and answer relevant. You should answer the question. But often it means challenging the assumption. That that can be the most valuable thing. Okay. Hopefully that was valuable. In any case, we'll get to the questions. Hopefully you'll see how this issue of method and this issue of premises behind questions comes up over and over. And by being philosophical about it, by thinking about the method, by thinking about the premises, uh, we can come up with some good answers. All right, so the next set of questions has to deal with the government's role in energy. Uh, now, just, just as context, I mean, we've talked about this in, in different forms on, on the show, but I mean, my, my basic belief is that the government's job is to protect individual rights in every sphere. Um, and in energy, the right that sort of most misunderstood, most misapplied or underapplied is the right to private property, which is the right to, um, you know, produce, use, and dispose of your own individual property. And the core of this right uh, is really the fact that all wealth must be created and the person um, so individuals need to have the ability to 
take nature, to mold it, to create new value with, the, with it, and then to keep the value that they create. And unfortunately, all the phases of that are under assault, particularly from the green movement, which says that man modifying, transforming, they would say tampering with nature um, is somehow wrong, intrinsically wrong, and it should be you know, minimized. We need to minimize our impact on nature, and therefore they, that is incompatible with uh, the right to private property, because you can't, you can't um, acquire, use, and dispose of property however you choose, because there is this nature, this sort of super being, almost this religious figure that takes precedence over you, and often it's couched as, quote, the uh, environment. And in the property rights view, and in the individualist moral view, there's no such thing as the environment that somehow is above or separate from human beings. There's the human environment, which is the, the sum of our individual uh, environments, and we need to think in those terms. And the, the number one requirement of a proper human environment is that humans be free to mold and shape it to improve it, because if we don't do that, if we just accept um, you know, the natural human environment, the unaltered human environment, that is incredibly dangerous. That is, that is, you know, the human environment that had a very, very low standard of living, a very, very high death rate um, for almost all of human history. And it's only when we started modifying nature, really transforming nature on a mass scale, that life got much, much, much uh, better. So that's, that's the frame. This idea of property rights is completely crucial for everything. It's also crucial to any sort of hazard or abuse of a given energy technology. So the fact that you have a right to create uh, with your own property, that, that is true. But the exercise of that right has a certain limit, which, is the, which includes the freedom of others to act on their own, including to act uh, to create things. So it's not as if you have a right to um, you know, create something that for you, you know, produces some sort of benefit, but that you know kills your neighbor with some sort of poison. That's and but property rights are so beautiful because they they protect you in all directions. They allow you to create with your own property, um, but at the same time they protect your property from any or you know from um, sort of negative actions that other people use their property for. So everyone has a right to use his or her property, um, but that's that's bounded by, or the, the right exists only insofar as it's not violating the rights of others. Now, there can be complex cases, some of which the questions pertain to, but it's important to note that the basic thing is that it, it protects your right to produce, and it protects you also as much as possible from the hazards of production. So you, you benefit in all ways. There's no trade-off between production and environment. Property rights gets you both. So let's take the first question. I, I didn't write down who wrote this one, but uh, it says one proposed solution to pollute, and, and I want you to pay attention to the wording here. One proposed solution to pollution is to privatize, notice that word, privatize the, the environment to deal with the problem of the trage of tragedy of the commons. What do you think of this? And then he asks about privatizing the air or, and privatizing fishing rights in an open ocean, how you do that. So I'll get to the lat latter part a little bit in a second. But words are really important. Terminology is really important. So as soon as we talk about the environment, that's exactly what the anti-property rights side likes to do because it, it creates this split 
between you know our activities molding our own surroundings and then some other thing you know like the spotted owl that the government needs to take cognizance of and really it's individuals exercising their own rights that need to take cognizance or not of the spotted owl. If you care about spotted owls, there are actions you can take to preserve them and enjoy them on your own property. But you don't have the right to tell someone, you know, whose life depends on cutting down trees that, oh, you can't cut down trees because I just decided of all this, you know, billions of species in the world, I decided to focus on this particular type of owl and make uh, a cause out of it. So it's really harmful to think about the environment because really what people are getting at when they're talking about the environment is they're talking about wilderness or untouched nature and that's certainly not something to be treasured. We should treasure the human environment which is um, a very developed environment, an environment where we can enjoy nature precisely because we have developed it uh, so much, precisely because there's so much man-made that we have um, the comfort and the luxury of being able to enjoy things like the Grand Canyon, which almost the vast majority of people did not have uh, throughout history. I'm actually in, in Turkey right now. Um, there's many, many beautiful natural sites where I'm in a place called Cappadocia right now, and they're just these amazing, what are called conicals, or I think they, they call them, um, what is it, like uh, fairy castles, and it's this, this unique rock formation that's really fascinating and beautiful. Uh, but you know this whole whole and this morning I took a hot air balloon uh, to see it and, and if you just think about how much man made there is in being able to enjoy that it's flying thousands of miles to get here. Um, I mean the whole the whole fact that even we can drink clean water in Turkey where there's a real issue we can thanks to modern year transportation water purification bottled water which is you know the bane of many environmentalist existence we depend on that here because the local tap water is not not very good quality so you know all the energy involved in making our food and then just the hot air balloon is just a giant balloon of oil it's a petroleum product and then it's running on you know 30 gallons of, of propane so it's it's just amazing how much the, the real harmony between man and nature is our interest in development and our interest in enjoying nature those are so harmonious so so Anything that splits that apart or acts like somehow we're the enemy of our own environment is, is, is really dangerous. Okay, so I've kind of harped on that. Um, but then this issue of privatized, this is, and if, if you think I'm picking on words too much, just, just watch the quality of the debate and the culture and how, how wrong people get all of these issues and how much they think the government needs to be involved. All the terminology is rigged to make people think the government should be involved. So let's take this idea of privatize. Well, because this is a general question, a solution to pollution. So he's not talking about any given case, he's talking about the general issues to privatize the environment. What does it mean to say privatize? I don't like this word at all because it implies that the default position, sort of the starting point is, well, the government owns, quote, the environment, or the government, the government's in charge of the environment, and then the government has certain environmental goals and then the issue is well can those goals be served better by the government doing things or by allowing private people doing things and it's 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 amoral or, or agnostic agnostic is a better word it's agnostic about how about you know what it should be and it's just well let's just look at let's see how it plays out is it better for the government to do it better for quote the private sector to do that it's also not terminology like this is completely wrong the government is the servant of individuals. We need to think about government 
as not coming first. Government comes second. So the first issue is, is individuals have a right to live you know, lives where they're creating and developing and pursuing happiness. And the question of government is, how can government enable that? And the answer is by respecting their uh, rights. So, and in particularly in the environmental context, it's by respecting their right to private property, to acquire, use, and dispose of property, as we've uh, discussed. But it's not, it's, it's, the government should be thought of as, like, it's, Necessary evil is not not the right way to think of it, but it has it is not the government is not the protector of some environment. The government is a protector of individuals, and individuals decide what kind of environment we live in. The only time the government gets involved with environment is when there's a rights violation issue. But it's very clear cut. The government does not say, "I want this many species. I want this many spotted owls." You know, human be there should be this much forest. We should nationalize one third of the U.S., which is Pretty much, which is what has been done over time. You know, number one uh, historical villain in this respect is Teddy Roosevelt. That is not its job at all. It's to protect the lives of individuals, and then individuals um, decide what their environment is going to be like. So it's 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 a real inversion uh, to think of it this way. And yet, just by the terminology, we're taught to think of yeah. Government, of course, protects quote, the environment. We don't think very carefully about what that means. And then, okay, should it privatize or not? No. Government protects the rights of individuals. Individuals determine environment. Government only comes in when there is a rights violation. There's this issue of the tragedy of the commons, which is, again is, is an important point, but it's this point of what happens when there's no real ownership? What happens when things are, quote, collectively owned? So you can take something like the ocean or the territory where um, the Gulf of Mexico where you have the oil spill. There's a real problem of since the government owns it, that means so supposedly everyone owns it, which means that no one owns it. And when you have areas like that, you can have problems with how do you set guidelines to protect against pollution. Um, if it's a fishery, which the, the questioner brings up, there are issues with that. Uh, because if, if, if you have you know, tons of people in a fishery and there's no property rights, people are going to have an incentive to overfish it, to fish as soon as possible. So this, this is a real phenomenon. Um, but it's it's a phenomenon that that is a consequence of not protecting property rights correctly. So it should be thought of as a derivative problem created by a wrong approach to government. It's not this. It's not something inherent in life that then sort of private property is one option for solving. No, it is it is a one of many negative consequences of private property not being protected. So again. Our premises are everything here. Do we believe primarily in individualism, or are we starting from a standpoint of, of statism and collectivism? I'm sure the questioner is not um, is not doing that deliberately, um, but this this is the terminology in the culture that is is ultimately used to justify the statist uh, position. Now he asks about privatizing the air or fishing rights in an open ocean. You know, there's. I mean, air is air is, you know, more of a local issue um, in most cases. Um, so, and and there's a really interesting history here of how to how to apply laws against trespass, which means, you know, trotting on someone's property, intruding on their property, and applying that to air. And um, there's an interesting scholar named Elizabeth Brubaker who has a book called Property Rights in the Defense of Nature, which I've actually just started, but. 
she she makes an interesting case about the history of government pollution actually at first failed to protect property rights in but in favor of business so improperly allowed businessmen to pollute and then instead of returning to a proper state of property rights where everyone would be protected to develop but also protected against pollution it went the other direction and gave government control and arbitrarily said we can call whatever we want a pollutant in effect. So if you have a Stevens kangaroo rat on your property, we can call that pollution. We can call that environment, which is completely, um, you know, bogus and, and has nothing to do with, is a contradiction of property rights. Um, but in general, with air, it's just an issue of trespass. Um, and then there's an issue also of, of what level of contamination is it proper for the government to act against? And I'll talk about that with the next question, because it's not true that any amount of particulate in the air uh, is a violation of your rights. It's, it's, and that's a mistake that a lot of so-called uh, libertarians make, and it leads to a lot of problems. Um, now, fishing rights, you know, there are a bunch of interesting uh, things with this, with roads, with a lot of other things. But ultimately, it's something that we in CIP are gonna write more about in terms of how to do it. Uh, but the real thing is just to name a couple of, of potential ways of doing it. I mean, we have electronic technologies now where you can draw boundaries I mean, using lasers and stuff. Uh, there's, there's lots, of, I mean, especially given technology, um, there are tons of different things you could use for people, you know, creating private fisheries. And the upside of that is, is just so huge. Uh, Robert Zubrin, who was on a couple of shows ago, I think talked a little bit about aquaculture, or maybe he just talked about it in the book, but aquaculture is basically agriculture for the sea. And we've exploited so little of the potential of the sea because we've had um, basically sea socialism. And we need to just, that we have this idea that, well, the water um, needs to be controlled by the government and somehow the land needs can be controlled by individuals. And it's really just taking that primitive mentality that the government owns everything and applying it to, misapplying it to the law. Really, um, there's no fundamental difference. Um, so that's, that's a big subject, but there's no, there's not, the difficulty here is not an issue of no one can figure out how to apportion the property. It's, it's more of a lot, it's more the, the belief in private property has declined precipitously, which is why we're losing it on land in the same way it hasn't been uh, apportioned in water. Now, David asks, um, at what point does pollution become a reasonable threat to the life of an individual? When does someone's pollution, perhaps too nebulous a term, become punishable? Uh, this is a really good question. I've, I've dealt with this uh, a lot of different places. I think in the Greenpeace debate, I, I talk about it, so I won't talk about it. You can watch the beginning of that. I think I, in my opening statement, I deal with it. Um, but it's a really important issue to realize that pollution has a context to it. Pollution is not just some, it's, it's not just that there's some deity that declares, okay, X amount of particulate matter in the air uh, is pollution because pollution is, is a, a byproduct that harms human health. But to, to determine that it's a byproduct that harms human health, the government should get involved in, requires a knowledge of what is the broader context of it. And the example I always like to use is, is fire. And the, man discovered fire and, and you know to cook his food and to heat stuff inherent in that discovery was that while improving his life just just so magnificently with that fire 
he was going to increase the amount of smoke that he breathed in. So, but, and that everyone is breathing in because they need to be fairly close to the fire lot. So his, you know, his children, his wife, the other members of the community. And the question is, would we regard that as pollution and would we say the government should be involved? And the answer is, of course not. It's not. It's not pollution, at least not in the sense that the government should be involved because it's, it's a byproduct that is essential to the preservation and furtherance of human life, um, individual human lives. And that's really what the whole issue rights exist to protect individuals pursuing their lives. So if a technology is essential to human life and its furtherance, you cannot call it a pollutant. This is, by the way, why it's completely wrong to call CO2 a pollutant, even if there were, you know, significant um, negative byproducts you have to deal with. You can, in this today's context, when it is completely essential for life, you cannot call it a pollutant. It does not, not make sense. At the same time, over time, what's great is as you get more technologies, as you get, um, you know, different ways of doing things more cleanly, you won't, you can call it pollution or you can call it a rights violation for someone to subject his child to an open fire for six hours a day because it's unnecessary and because there is real uh, harm there. But in, at every stage, it needs to be contextual based on what is the state of technology, what is the state of economics, what does human life require at a given stage. You can't say in a vacuum, this is a, a big misconception on rights, rights means no one can do anything that harms anyone and no one can ever suffer even any physical harm at anyone. And that's, that's not right. Right? Primarily deal with your freedom of action. And there are many, many contexts in which other people's actions on a large or small level are going to affect you negatively and even affect you negatively physically. And if you're a restaurant, you get driven out of business, you can't afford as good health insurance, you might live a couple of years shorter. And that's not, it's not happy to think about by itself, but you wouldn't live nearly as long if you didn't live in a system that protected rights in the first place. So the idea of rights is not this atomistic thing where we're all sort of hermetically sealed uh, from everyone else. So we somehow get every conceivable benefit from cooperation, but that there are no byproducts or no downsides. That's not the way life works. You, you accept you know, living with others. You the government protects your freedom of action, which includes your freedom to minimize any negative effects from others. But there's no, this atomistic view is, is really harmful. It's among so-called libertarians, it's prevalent. And fortunately, it gets people who are in favor of liberty a, a reputation of being detached from reality. Because in reality, you're interacting with people in lots and lots of different ways. And really, the key thing the government protects, again, is freedom of action. And if you have that freedom of action, um, you know, you you can, that's really the key to you as an individual and then to society more broadly living uh, amazing lives. All right, uh, let's speed through some of these. Uh, was the Three Gorges Dam that's in China fundamentally a good development? It's a huge dam, hydroelectric dam. There was a lot of controversy surrounding the relocation of 1.4 million people. Do you think such mega dams would ever be constructed in a free society without eminent domain power? A really good question. And the issue is, I mean, leaving aside this, there's a real, so hydro is an interesting issue because it, because it's, it's a very efficient form of power from one perspective, but it is often the government is, it, it's often taking place in places where the government has nationalized the property, including rivers and areas nearby rivers. And in my view, those should all be private. 
um, you know, the government should, uh, you know, in some form or another, return those uh, to private hands or allow individuals uh, to buy them and, and run them prop uh, privately in different ways, and that would be that would be the the proper policy. Um, so when there's this issue of tragedy of the commons that came before, the problem is when the government owns it, it has to make these decisions of its. It on the one hand has this job which it shouldn't have of producing the power, and then on the other hand it is, has this job which it shouldn't have of kind of, you know, giving people a happy lifestyle. And the point is the government has neither of those jobs properly. It should just leave them free and then they on their own can decide, well, do we want a dam here? Do we want a really large dam? Do we want a smaller dam? Is, is living in this place proper? In general, China errs on the side of lots and lots of rights violations because it doesn't have a good um, tradition or philosophy of protecting individual rights in a lot of different contexts. So, I mean, that's, it's not, it's definitely not okay what happened with Three Gorges and what happens around the world. Uh, but at the same time, but the, so that's one issue with Hydra, is that the government policy is totally wrong because it's, if you're dealing with nationalized things where there's really no right answer. At the same time, Hydra is really important as, as, an example or as an illustration of what the green movement really means because it is one of the two by far leading sources of cheap plentiful reliable energy that uh, can be produced without co2 emissions now it's not can't produce all the energy in the world by any known method just because there's not enough suitable sites that have the right amount of water and gravity and angle uh, to produce hydroelectric power but still can produce mass, massive amounts, and the Greens have been shutting that down. And they've been telling, in effect, the nationalizing governments, make it a priority to shut these down for what they would call environmental reasons, which in my view are anti-human environmental reasons. Things like we want to protect the salmon and we, you know, we want to protect free flowing rivers. Now, in the context where the government is taking responsibility for environment, and especially if it's declared, which it shouldn't, that global warming is this menace and catastrophe, it's completely unconscionable at that stage to say, we're not going to build dams. I mean, if it's responsible, then it should be doing the thing that on its premises would improve human life. And the fact that it isn't shows that it's really, the green movement is really an anti development movement, anti-modifying nature movement is not at all about making sure we have a healthy environment to live in. Um, so there's a question about natural gas from John. I don't quite understand it all. Um, but it's, it's basically about natural gas and U.S. lands that are owned by the government and what should be done with those. And uh, those should be, I mean, Pretty simple. Those should be sold off. Now, what parcels to apportion them to, and who exactly buy them, and do you allow? To what extent, you know, foreign buyers allowed? There are some, you know, interesting issues there. But fundamentally, the government has just taken over a third of the country, and there's nothing special about that third. It just happened at a time when the government was much more statist and much more uh, collectivist. So if if we were free to have to if, if that were private, we could enjoy it much, much more. And we could enjoy it from a production standpoint, and we could enjoy it from a consumption, uh, natural beauty standpoint. So definitely all of that. Um, I mean, it's a slam dunk that the vast majority should be private, and I think, uh, I think I can make the case that ultimately all of it should be private.
All right, now, my favorite question of the night, because um, I think the content is so important here, is from Nick. And it is, what is the best way to counter the argument that oil, natural gas, etc., are widely used because they are subsidized directly and indirectly? So you might have heard this view. It particularly comes up with oil. It also came up in the, the Greenpeace debate, which is at um, youtube.com slash industrial progress. And um, let's see. And I want to take this as an example of of how philosophy can be super valuable in clarifying these things and how the lack of philosophy is a huge problem in thinking about it. So just to, to recapitulate what you'll often hear is you'll often hear that, okay, well, we only pay, let's say, $4 a gallon for gasoline, but they would say this when it was $3 or $2. But what we're not paying the real cost because the real cost of gasoline is the tens of billions of dollars we spend in the Middle East. Um, and, you know, the catastrophic global warming it's, it's causing, and all the deaths from air pollution it's causing, and the people who die in car accidents every year, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you, if you go to enough websites, you look up Google something like the real price of oil, you just get this idea of, oh, well, if we were paying the real price, then solar and wind uh, are a bargain. And that that and so it's it's this idea that oh well they're just the government is is subsidizing these things so how do we think about that issue well i think a really good question to start with which i never hear started with is what is a subsidy what does it mean for the government to subsidize are all of those things i talked about leaving aside that most of them are inflated or, or distorted what is a subsidy are those are those really subsidies um, so what is a subsidy? Well, it's, I mean, a subsidy is, is you know, government, ex, you know, basically government expressing a preference, usually by giving money, um, to one market competitor over another. So it's government, you know, expressing a preference by giving money to one market competitor over another. Let's let's take this in the individual context. So the government, because in a sense, as individuals, we're we're, we're all competing in the market. Okay, so if the government gives me, says, you know, I think, you know, I want to support you, Alex, and it gives me a million dollars just, you know, to promote my life and to get me started and stuff, and it doesn't give that to you, and in fact, it might make you and a hundred of your friends pay $10,000, or a thousand of your friends pay $1,000, that would be a subsidy. That would be unfair. It's simply just giving because it says for whatever reason it prefers me or maybe I'm part of some class that it prefers. So that's that's a clean subsidy. But let's take a different example and ask if this is a subsidy. What if let and let's take, you know, 50 years ago when we have, you know, much much more or even 80 years ago, much much more racism than we do today. And the, and someone calculates, well, you know what? It costs more to protect the rights of black people than it does to protect the white the rights of white people. So when we're you know when you're dealing with black people, you're not paying the real cost of dealing with black people because you know you have to pay these extra taxes on their behalf. Now what would you say? You say this is completely outrageous argument. I mean the government exists to protect rights. If their rights are being unjustly are being 
attacked to a greater extent than others, we should certainly happily want to protect them and we should be apologetic that they're having to deal with that all the time. But to put those two in the same category, to say just giving someone money just out of favoritism versus the government using more money to protect their rights, those are two totally different things. And yet in the context of oil, those two are blended together. So if we take the issue of how much different industries are given in terms of stuff, the other um, you know, solar and wind and are given much more, by some estimates, 90 times more. And really, the oil industry is not given subsidies. I mean, they're, the only time they talk about subsidies are the government, the government refusing to not give them the same tax rules that it gives to other industries. That's what the subsidies amount to. But this is not something the government is giving money to. And by the way, as a parenthetical, one way to look at this question, common sense is, okay, if is it if the government was really just giving subsidies to oil companies in some way in the U.S., then wouldn't you expect that there would be other places where it wasn't giving those subsidies where these other technologies would be dominant? Now, solar and wind combined have less than 0.5% market share uh, of the whole world energy market. So they're complete failures uh, on a global scale. And that They only have that much because massive, you know, billions and billions and billions have been, I mean, hundreds of billions have been, at least have been squandered on them. Um, so the fact that oil is everywhere, used everywhere, is just a huge clue that it is not a subsidy issue. It's not, because it's not, the same dynamics don't occur. It's not like all these other countries have, you know, battleships in the, you know, or aircraft carriers near the Middle East or whatever. So it's, for that reason, you can tell it's BS. But I want to, I want to talk about the, the subsidy issue, because it's, it's, what's happening here. And the whole history of oil is a really interesting thing, and I, my course, The Triumph and Tragedy of the Oil Industry, a link to that, talks about how unjustly the oil companies have been treated by government. But just on its face, it is completely different to hand the oil companies a bunch of money, which is not happening, and to protect their rights. So if we are on the premise of Saudi Arabia, these other countries are our friends and we're having diplomatic relations with them, and we are, now whether we should be is a real question, but if we are, then we need to protect rights where those countries are concerned. I mean, so that, that's, that becomes the job of the government. And if these governments are threatening to nationalize oil companies, that is violating their rights. If they are, I mean, if they're threatening to, you know, close off um, certain trade routes and prevent people from voluntarily trading from one another, which is the Strait of Hormuz issue, that is a violation of rights. And that's exactly why we need a government to do these exact sorts of things. That is not a subsidy. That is the government using money uh, properly. And it should not be factored into the price of oil. And indeed, any major form of energy that we use, the government is going to have to use a lot of and should use a lot of money to protect because energy is so foundational, so it'll always be a target for enemies. So let's imagine that solar becomes practical one day. What's going to happen? Well, I mean, we, I'm laughing, but with solar, you've got this incredibly fragile material interconnected on this massive network, which is an incredible, if, if, you, if it actually produces any decent amount of energy would be a huge security liability because you could cut cables really easily. You could smash the glass or you know the different materials really easily. 
I mean, it would just be a huge thing. But let's say it was that was the efficient thing and it won out on a market. Well, then the government should be protecting those solar panels. But then would you say, oh, well, the government is hugely sub could the oil industry, let's say it had been outcompeted, could they say, oh, well, you're subsidizing them by because you're you're you know, you're watching the solar collectors. Of course you're watching the solar collectors because those are the things that have actually uh, created value. So a subsidy and a rights protection are two different things. And the government should protect everyone's rights uh, properly. Now there are issues of, with foreign countries, should we have diplomatic relations? And then should we, you know, what, what um, sort of what rules do we set initially for countries getting involved? Like at this point, I think, you know, saying that we have any kind of good relations with Venezuela or that we're gonna protect rights in Venezuela, I, I think that's th that ship has sailed a long time ago. Um, I mean, you could do retaliatory stuff, but in terms of, um, I mean, that is not a uh, that is not a legitimate government for us to be dealing with. But but in the case of the oil companies, you have the government has said Saudi Arabia is our friend. We're dealing with them. Um, you know, we will protect your rights. Once it said that, that's that's the deal. Now you can question that in the future, but you have an obligation to protect them. And more broadly, the other thing with the Middle East is. It's not as if there would be no threat without oil. I mean, it's not as if 9-11 was this, you know, incredibly expensive job. You've got a real threat based on ideology out there. Even if the U.S. stopped buying all oil, that threat would not be um, certainly not entirely eliminated. I mean, it's argue, it's hard to tell it to what. I mean, it certainly help. I mean, it would, you know, destroy our lives in other ways. But it's it's hard to, you know, predict these things. But... The, the point is is that there's there's just this complete scapegoating of the oil companies for every conceivable problem and then drawing this like completely arbitrary um, price tag on everything that they do and saying and it's the same with car accidents I mean why what you know people talk about car accidents when why is that the oil companies for it? Obviously, if you had electric cars, it'd be the same thing. And people are choosing to drive cars, knowing that there are risks, but knowing that the rewards of the life of mobility are worth uh, the risks. And you could also say, well, if we had private roads, they'd be a lot safer. Uh, but nevertheless, people are assuming those risks. And in no way, shape, or form should those be called the cost uh, of oil. So this is a really, a really corrupt thing, but it comes down to the issue of terminology and, and knowing how to think about things like subsidies and, and having as our clear standard with government, government exists to protect rights and that's it. And no subsidies means no giveaways, no preferences. It does not mean a failure to protect the rights of the most successful energy producers. So let's see how much time we have. Oh, wow. So I want to wrap up in, in fairly close to an hour. So let's let's take this as the last one. There's a CNN. This is from uh, Alyssa. Do you have any thoughts on today's CNN Money article? The article posits that natural gas fracking is responsible for more carbon emissions reduction than, i.e., cleaner air than cap and trade laws. First of all, I would, well, let let's. This isn't so. This is an example of where we need to be really clear on what our premises are, and premises are important for a couple of reasons. They're important so that we have clear thinking. Um, and as an aspect of that, it's important that we 
always be clear on what the goal is. So what is the, what, what do we think should happen in reality? What are we after? Uh, it's a very common tendency, especially among conservatives, to accept the other side's goals and then say, oh, you're being a hypocrite with regard to them. That is, that is a dangerous game because once you concede the other side's goals, if it's not the right goal, it's not the right goal. And you don't want to, you, you don't want to fight for some short-term thing um, if you're, if you're conceding and endorsing a bad goal. And so here the issue of, we should ask, what is our goal? What, what goal are we endorsing with any given question or thought? And here it is, is carbon emissions reduction, is that a goal that we should endorse? I would say given the current context of knowledge and the, the current context of technology, uh, no, it is not. And so let's take this example of, of hydraulic fracturing. Does that reduce CO2 emissions more than cap-and-trade laws? Well, there is no cap-and-trade law in the U.S., so certainly in the U.S. and around the world, yes, to the extent they've been imposed. But of course, if you had, if you capped it at 100%, you'd shut down all of life, but you'd make us emit less CO2. So is that a good goal? So there's something wrong with thinking of reducing CO2 emissions as a goal. Um, it's not... I mean, unless you unless you believe that it's that there's a real catastrophe and you know, that that all of human life is, is threatened by this um, by this part of of producing the vast majority of the world's energy. I mean, if you believe that, then it's an emergency situation and you need to make some hard decisions. Um, but in general, it shouldn't just be cavalier. And I see this all the time from conservatives cavalierly. Oh, natural gas reduces emissions. Well, it doesn't reduce emissions nearly as much as prohibiting uh, energy does. And it doesn't, and also reducing emissions is not good because we need more energy here and we also need more, and, and people abroad need vastly more energy. So even if you're using natural gas for everything, which is very, very far from what's possible in any given future, as we discussed last week with Marlo Lewis, coal is the leading is the leading, uh, you know, the leading growth source of energy has been for for a while now. The world needs vastly more. People need vastly more energy. There's no limit to the amount of energy, but just in even knowable ways of using energy, heating, cooling, getting clean water, tons of people lack that. So in that situation, you can't say that this is that CO2 production, an essential element of energy production as we know it, you can't say our goal is to reduce it. Now, of course, it's true that it, 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 it's less of a growth if you, if you have, um, you know, with, uh, with natural gas, let's say it has about half, maybe, I forget the exact figures, but let's say it has half the CO2 emissions, sure, compared to coal, it'll emit less, but, it's, but maybe use twice as much, maybe use four times as much. The goal should not be emission reduction. And if you really think it's a catastrophe, you need to think of it scientifically, which, which means that have an idea of, okay, how is this actually going to work? What is the real safe level? How do we get there? But to just nebulously attach like a guilt to every emission of CO2 and then say, oh, well, this is doing less than that. So that's okay. That's better. That's just, that's religion. I mean, the questioner is not, I'm not accusing the questioner of this at all, but that is the way we think about it in the culture. It's just, oh, okay, I'm using 1% less CO2 than I was going to. Okay, well, that's that's now I can feel good. Now I can feel less bad. That's garbage. That is not thinking. Again, if it's a real thing, then you should take it seriously 
and have an idea of how to minimize the damage uh, in all directions. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.